Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, we need to make sure that we are in fellowship. Scripture teaches that whenever a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ sins, it breaches that fellowship with God. It breaks down the ongoing ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, in terms of His sanctifying work in our life. And it is necessary for us to admit to God in the privacy of our priesthood through silent prayer, through confession, that what we have done. And instantly God forgives us, cleanses us from all other unrighteousness so that we are cleansed, we're restored to fellowship. God, the Holy Spirit's sanctifying ministry then resumes. This is important for us before we study God's Word because it is God the Holy Spirit who helps us to not only understand the Word, but also He is the one who stores it in our soul. He is the one who brings it to memory for application. He is the real energy and power in the spiritual life of the believer. So we'll bow our heads together for a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much that we can come to you this morning to study your word because you have revealed yourself to us and you have preserved your word for us down through the ages. We know with confidence that we have that which you have revealed to us, that it has not been distorted, it has not been lost, it has not been, uh, it has not been destroyed in any way by any human mistake or any human effort but that you have preserved it, you have given it to us, and we live in an era today when we have so much available to us in terms of biblical teaching and biblical understanding. And now, Father, as we take this time, we recognize that this is the highest form of worship we can engage in, to learn how you think and how you would have us to think and how you would have us to live. And we pray that during this uh, next hour that we can put our focus and attention exclusively on what God the Holy Spirit is teaching us uh, through your word today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in a study in Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5 is a scene in heaven where the four living creatures, the 24 elders, the angels are gathered around the throne of God. And it is a scene where uh, they they have been seeking someone 
some creature who can come forward and take the scroll that God the Father has in his hand, a scroll that is the title deed to the earth. And they search throughout all of creation, seeking someone qualified, someone worthy to take the scroll. It is a search that seems to take some time for the Apostle John, as we've seen, begins to almost weep uncontrollably, weep in tremendous mourning because none can be found worthy to take the scroll. And then in verse verse 6, John looks and behold, he says, In the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he identifies the lamb. He says, Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fall down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sing a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. The Lamb is identified as the resurrected and ascended Lord Jesus Christ, and he is worthy to take that scroll for one reason here, is that he was slain and has redeemed us to God by your blood. For the last two or three weeks, we've been studying the doctrine of redemption in the Scripture. The doctrine of redemption is foundational to understanding everything the Bible says about the believer's salvation. Salvation is a very broad term, and the Bible uses a number of more specific terms to speak about salvation. It talks about such words as atonement and justification, expiation, regeneration. These are all different facets of what is accomplished by Christ on the cross and then what is applied to the person who puts his faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. But the underlying doctrine, that which is foundational to all of the others, is the doctrine of redemption. So let me give you four brief points of introduction on the significance of redemption. First of all, what I just stated is that redemption is the underlying image of salvation. From the Old Testament to the New Testament, the underlying image of what takes place on the cross is redemption. You have other things in terms of uh, the Old Testament uses the word atonement. Atonement is very close to the idea of redemption, but that word atonement is never used in the New Testament. But the uh, underlying image that incorporates even atonement is the idea of redemption. Justification, regeneration, forgiveness, these are terms that affect the application of Christ's redemptive work to the individual believer. So redemption is the underlying image of salvation. Second point that we looked at last time, and that is that the importance of redemption is that a price has been paid. That's what redeem means. It's not a synonym for forgiveness. It's not really a synonym for uh, regeneration. It's not a synonym for these other things. It is, it is that which makes everything else possible because a price has been paid. There's that imagery there of a transaction that, a, that occurs on the cross, that a price is paid, a penalty is, is paid. And it's because that penalty is paid that even the Father's justice 
is propitiated another aspect of salvation. So the key imagery here is that of a price paid. Third, the redemption price is paid in full. We saw this in John chapter 20, that the last thing Jesus says before he dies is, to telestai, which is a perfect tense verb indicating a transaction that's already been completed, already finished, and it has results that go on. It was something that in the Greek world someone would write on the bottom of a bill once it was paid. That nothing else can be done. Nothing else can be added to it. We could spend an hour just exploring the implications of that statement that there is nothing Not one thing, not one thought, not one attitude, not one decision, not one act of morality that anyone can do to add to the value of what Christ did on the cross because there is nothing that you and I can ever do that possesses the same value as that which Christ did on the cross because he alone is worthy. That's what we get out of Revelation chapter 5 is worthy is the Lamb. He alone is worthy to pay that price, and no one else is. There's not one thing we can add to it. In fact, the simple attempt to add to it through anything, through consistent obedience, through any particular act of obedience, through any ritual, the very thought that you can add to the work of Christ is blasphemy. The very thought that you can do something to enable Christ to save you is blasphemy. That is why at that point of salvation, that if it's not faith alone, in Christ alone, then you have not believed the biblical gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ paid it all. Because when you add something to Christ, or you add something to faith, you destroy the whole gospel. You're no longer relying exclusively upon him. You're adding something subtly. People do it. They either add it at the front door and say you have to believe and be baptized, believe and join a church, believe and be engaged in some sort of ritual, uh, believe and continue to believe, continue to do good works. If you add anything, you've destroyed it. What happens today is we have a subtle uh, thing called lordship salvation, a subtle doctrine that comes along and says you can't really know you're saved unless you have been faithful unless you have continued to believe in Christ throughout your entire Christian life. Because if you come to a point and you deny Christ or reject Christ, then you weren't really saved. And see, the problem on both ends is that there's a failure to understand the sin problem in all of its complexity, and and therefore a failure to understand the redemptive work of Christ and its application in all of its complexity. It is a shallow view of sin, ultimately, and a shallow view of salvation. And so we must come recognizing that Christ does it all. So the redemption price is paid in full. And then the fourth thing is that the redemption price, as we've seen, was paid by a perfect human being who alone could die as our substitute. God could not do it himself. It had to be a man because there's a substitutionary dimension to redemption. He dies in our place. It had to be a genuine human being. That's the significance 
of redemption. Now let's review what we've done so far in terms of redemption. First of all, we recognized by going to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, that man was created in the image of God and set over creation to rule it. That means that ultimately in terms of our humanness, every human being has significance and value because they are in the image of God. Now the problem with that is some people come along, they emphasize that so much today that they fail to appreciate what happens to that image because of sin. And so they think that everybody's just wonderful and you can fulfill all of your potential just on your own. And so this has led today to tremendous heresy in many pulpits where the message is so positive and it's so uplifting and motivational that there's no discussion whatsoever of sin. We don't start the gospel by talking about sin because the gospel really starts with understanding who we are before sin. But if we go from the imageness that we have, the imago dei is a Latin phrase, if we start with the images and not deal with sin, then we're not dealing with what Christ did on the cross. And if we start with sin without first laying the foundation that we're created in the image and likeness of God, then we come across as just negative, judgmental uh, people who are just pointing a finger at everybody and wagging in their face saying, you're nothing but a dirty, rotten sinner. See, you are originally, man was originally created in the image and likeness of God, and that's not gone. I don't care who they are, how much you detest somebody, or how much you hate them, or how horrible they are, how much of an enemy they may be to our nation, an enemy to freedom, whatever the situation may be, they are still in the image and likeness of God, but that image is corrupted by the fall. That's what we studied last time. We talked about the fact that Man was given one test in relationship to his faithful service. Point number one, we emphasize man was set over creation to rule it. Point number two is that man is given one test in the garden. And that test was to obey God and not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because God said in the day that you eat of it, you will certainly die. And when Adam did, he didn't die physically, but he died spiritually. He was separated from God. And that's the third point. When Adam failed and ate the fruit, he immediately suffered the judicial penalty, which was separation from God, spiritual death. Ephesians 2.1 makes it clear that we are born spiritually dead, but physically alive. That leads us to a fourth point. The sin issue reverberated throughout all creation and impacted not only man's ability to perform his divinely ordained responsibilities, It not only impacted man's personal relationship with God, it not only impacted man's spirituality, but it affected everything in the universe from the physical laws of the universe, the laws related to biology and botany and everything else. Romans chapter 8 tells us that that the whole creation groans under the curse of sin. You see, you you have to understand that sin isn't just something simple like telling a white lie or or maybe in your mind sins are great things and it's committing murder or perjury or racism or whatever the social sins are of the generation, that the Bible says sin is much more profound than that. 
See, what caused all this suffering, all of this evil, all the warfare, all the famine, all the natural disasters, before Adam sinned, there were no hurricanes or tornadoes or earthquakes or any of these things. There were no thorns or thistles or cactus or poisonous snakes or any of this. All that's the result of Adam's sin. And so the Bible says that that was due to a sin that wasn't, uh, you know, there's some religious groups that say this is all allegory and, and eating the fruit was just metaphor for sexual relations in the garden. And all of this is just... It's just, it destroys what's happened here. We have to come to grips with what the Bible says. And the Bible says that just a simple act of disobedience is what caused all this. That when man just does anything, no matter how innocuous it may seem that it is, because it's an act of disobedience to God, it, it just rips apart all of creation. And all Adam did was eat a piece of fruit. That was it. Nothing more. He didn't kill anybody, commit genocide. He didn't commit perjury. He didn't commit adultery. He wasn't a sexual pervert. He just ate a piece of fruit. And so when we come to grips with the significance of sin, then we realize, point number five, that God and God alone can solve the problem. Man can't solve the problem. He is rendered incapable of solving the problem himself. And so point number six, to truly understand the dynamics and the extent of what the Bible means by redemption and salvation, we must come to grips with complexity of this sin problem. And, and that word comes, the key word there is agorazo, redemption, that there must be a payment of a price. So here's the problem. Man is on one side and now he's separated from God on the other side by this sin barrier. But it's not as simple as just saying it's sin, for there's different dynamics at work here. And we went through this a little bit last week. I'm not going to go through every one of these. But I just want you to understand that there's at least six different major components in this sin barrier. There's the fact of sin, number one. Number two, there's the penalty of sin, which is spiritual death. A penalty has to be paid. Number three, there's the problem of the character of God. He's perfectly righteous and perfectly just, and he cannot have fellowship with any creature that is righteous or just. So his justice has to be satisfied. Fourth, there's the problem of spiritual death, that we are born spiritually dead. There has to be a solution to that. Fifth, there is the problem of our lack of righteousness, that we are born with, without God's righteousness, and therefore we cannot have fellowship with him. And that's part of who we are. And then finally, we are born in Adam, the scripture says, our position in Adam. So all of those are different facets, different components of the sin problem. And so God had to design a solution that would include incorporate all this and solve all of this, not only solve it at its core in terms of the sin problem itself, but he had to design a plan that would also solve the problem of all the consequences that came from Adam's sin. He not only has to solve the problem of man's spiritual death and his lack of righteousness, but because Adam disobeyed God, it reverberated through all of creation, and the physical creation is affected. So there has to be a physical dimension to the solution provided by God for sin. So point number seven is that we have to explore the complexity of redemption. 
Failure to do this has led to all kinds of problems. This is why you have, on the one hand, the Arminian solution that you trust Christ, but if you deny him, you can lose your salvation. See, that puts too much effort and emphasis on man and man's ability, and it doesn't deal adequately with the complexity of sin. On the other hand, you have the uh, high Calvinist view of a lordship view of perseverance that if you're truly saved, then your life is going to always show it and there will be physical evidence of that. Once again, we fail to deal with the complexities and the dynamics of sin and the extent of what it takes place on the cross. So we have to look at this concept of redemption because that lays the foundation. Now, last time we looked primarily at the Old Testament. We did a little work in the New Testament, some of the uh, Greek words for redemption, which emphasize purchasing something out of the marketplace, Uh, the idea of buying something, paying a price, uh, ransom. These are all ideas that indicate the payment of something. But in the Old Testament, I pointed out that there are two images that redemption Uh, goes to. And we always have to think of these two images whenever you think of redemption. The first is the Passover lamb. What happens when the Jews come out of Egypt? When the Jews come out of Egypt, they are redeemed. There is the death of the lamb at the Passover. And this depicts what will eventually happen when the lamb of God comes to take away the the sin of the world. The Jews are in slavery to Egypt. All mankind is in slavery to sin. There must be a payment, and that payment involves the shedding of blood, which is what we get to in the next phrase and our passage in Revelation 5, that we're redeemed by his blood. So there is the Passover lamb imagery, and second, the kinsman redeemer imagery. This is really developed in the book of Ruth, where Ruth is left a widow, And in the Mosaic Law, there was this provision that a kinsman could come and rescue a relative whose husband had died, rescue a woman usually who's left with debts, who's left with uh, a lack of protection, whatever it might be. And this kinsman of, of the dead husband could then marry her, raise up the firstborn in the name of the of the dead husband so that his inheritance, the property, would pass on and would stay within the family. But the emphasis is that it needed to be a kinsman, someone who was related uh, to the dead husband, had to pay the price, had to be the goel, which is from the Hebrew word ga'al, which means redemption. So this kinsman redeemer emphasizes the aspect that Christ is our kinsman. He had to be true uh, true humanity. So we looked at this last time and em- saw this emphasis on the payment of a price. So I want to draw about nine principles here. Skip ahead. First of all, we are delivered from the curse of the law. These are results of redemption. First of all, we are delivered from the curse of of the law. Why is the, cur- the law a curse? In Romans 7, Paul says that the law is good and holy and just. Well, what the law shows is that no one can fulfill the law, the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments. 
No one can can fulfill that. If anyone could, they would uh, allegedly meet the standard of God's perfect righteousness. But the point of the law is to show that we can't. And that's what Paul came to realize as Saul of Tarsus when he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, trying to gain God's approval by, by fulfilling the law. He came to realize that the more moral he was, the more he developed mental attitude sins of, uh, of arrogance and of pride, and he began to realize more and more his own failure. And that's the curse of the law. The judgment of the law is that no one can keep the law. So in Galatians 3.13 and 4.4-6, through 6, he relates redemption to deliverance from the curse of the law. Second, redemption is the foundation for forgiveness of sins. Ephesians 1.7 and Colossians 1.14 both talk about we, the fact that we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, it looks as if that phrase, the forgiveness of sins, is appositional to redemption. In other words, that it's saying Redemption in other words, that is, redemption in other words, the forgiveness of sins. But they're not the same concept. Forgiveness is the application, whereas redemption is the payment of a price. So the relationship between those two concepts in those verses is that redemption, the foundation or the basis for the forgiveness of sins. Because as the scripture teaches... Christ redeemed all. He paid the price for all sin. There's no sin that was left out of the cross. Every single sin in human history. Remember, God the Father is the one who's judging Jesus Christ on the cross for our sins. He's the one judging Jesus Christ on the cross for your sins. God is omniscient. He didn't forget anything. God knew every single sin that you would commit. He didn't come along and now in 2008 or 2009 you commit some sin and God says, oops, I forgot to put that one on the cross. It's not going to happen. Every single sin was known by God the Father and was judged on the cross. And that's why we talk about the sufficiency of Christ's work on the cross. And so every sin was paid for. Nothing left out. Every sin was paid for, and that is the basis for forgiveness. But not every sinner is forgiven because there are those who do not put their faith alone in Christ alone. And if you don't trust Christ for your salvation, then the forgiveness aspect is not applied. So forgiveness is distinct from redemption, but redemption is the basis for forgiveness and so through redemption, we have forgiveness of all sin. Isaiah 44:22, Ephesians 1:7, Colossians 1:14, and Hebrews 9:15. Third result of redemption is that redemption is the basis for our justification, Romans 3:24. Redemption is the basis for our justification. In redemption, Christ paid the penalty for all sin. But justification is an application. When you put your faith alone in Christ alone, the first thing that happens after that is that God imputes to you, reckons to you, the righteousness of Christ. So that's given to you instantly, simultaneously. It's given to you, and then he declares you to be just because you possess the perfect righteousness of Christ. But that's application. Before that can happen, the sins have to be paid for. And that's the transaction that took place 
on the cross. So third point, redemption is the basis for our justification. You can be just justified before God because Christ paid it all. Fourth, redemption then is the basis for our sanctification. Ephesians 5, 25 to 27. Redemption is the basis for our sanctification. See, first there's redemption, then there is justification, and then there is sanctification, which is the application of all of this to spiritual life and spiritual growth. So first you have to be justified, and that is distinct from sanctification. In justification, you're positionally sanctified by being placed in Christ. But there's still spiritual growth, and spiritual growth takes place as a result of learning the Word of God. Some people say, well, you know, I saw so-and-so, and he claims he's a Christian, he claims he put his trust in Jesus Christ, but this guy is... Look at him. He never goes to church. He's a drunk. He's an alcoholic. He beats his wife. How can he claim to be a Christian? Well, see, what you've suddenly done is said that Christianity is somehow based on an individual's morality. If somebody never learns anything about the Bible, which is typical of probably 90% of American Christians today, they never have an opportunity to really learn the Scriptures. And growth comes as a result of learning Scripture. So if you don't learn the Bible... You can't grow. The Holy Spirit's going to produce growth, but not apart from the Scripture. We're not mystics. The Holy Spirit produces growth, but the tool that he uses is the Word of God. So if all somebody ever hears, and thankfully there are churches where that's all they ever hear is the the gospel, but if all they ever hear is the gospel and they never hear anything about confession of sin or recovery, they never learn anything about uh, the Christian life, all they learn over and over again is the gospel, then they can't grow because no tools are being given the Holy Spirit to use. But redemption is the basis for our spiritual life. There must be the application of redemption before you can grow spiritually. Fifth, redemption is the basis for the in- in- eternal inheritance of believers. Redemption is the basis for eternal inheritance of believers. We see this coming out of our study of Revelation. Because we are redeemed, the redeemed have a future role with Jesus Christ in the future kingdom. So redemption is the basis for eternal inheritance of believers, but there will be those believers who will have no inheritance in the kingdom because they never grow. They are the ones who are pictured in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 talking about the judgment seat of Christ, there will be those who will uh, enter heaven with no rewards. All of their works are burned up because they never grew. There are those failures I talked about in the previous point who learned the gospel, but they never learned anything about how to grow as a believer. They were, perhaps all they ever heard was the gospel. Perhaps they decided to uh, reject Christianity for whatever reason after they were saved. And so they're like the prodigal son. They squander that which they had had. Sixth, redemption is the basis for the strategic victory of Jesus Christ in the angelic conflict. What Jesus Christ did on the cross not only relates to what happens in the salvation of the human race, but also deals with the consequences of sin in all of the universe that came out of Satan's original sin because of Jesus Christ's 
redemptive work on the cross, he is able to come back at the second coming. He is able to establish his kingdom. He is able to roll back the curse in the millennial kingdom and then eventually to destroy this present heavens and earth, which is scarred by sin, create a new heavens and earth, which will go on into uh, into eternity. And seventh, redemption of the soul and salvation results eventually in redemption of the body in resurrection. And, I might add, redemption of the planet. Ephesians 1.14, Romans 8.23, and Ephesians 4.30. So, these lay out the relationship of redemption to other things. Redemption, of course, is very important because it's a foundation of everything in, uh, in terms of application to our salvation. But for the believer, it goes a step further, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20. There he relates redemption to the believer's ongoing... Uh, I think I skipped a point. Redemption views salvation from the standpoint of the complete payment of sins, the option to believe in Jesus Christ for eternal life. That was the eighth point. I was got uh, skipped ahead in my notes. Redemption views salvation from the standpoint of the complete payment of our sins, the option to believe in Christ for eternal life. The point that I'm making here is that it is a full payment, a full payment. Let me use an illustration I've used a couple of times before. If we go out to eat after church, we decide to go out and have lunch, and at the conclusion of the meal, you decide to that you need to go wash your hands, and so you're gone from the table for a few minutes, and during that time, the waiter comes and brings a check, and I pay for it paid for paid in full paid the tip everything it's done you come back and you're upset because you wanted to take me out for lunch you wanted to pay the bill but no i have paid the bill it is paid in full you can't add to it you can't take away from it you can't change it you may not like it but it's paid for that's the significance of the terminology that we find throughout the new testament is that jesus christ paid for our sins. It is a genuine substitution. A genuine, not a hypothetical substitution. And we'll get into this more next week. But it is the idea that Christ truly did pay for your sins. So they're paid for. You see, most people think there's only one thing that needs to happen in order for you to get saved, and that is for your sins to get paid for. But see, if that were true, then everybody would go to heaven. Because everybody's sins are paid for. That's what, you have this again and again in the scriptures that Christ paid for this for not only our sins but the sins of the whole world. First Timothy chapter four. But you see, that's not the only thing that has to happen. The sins there are three things that have to happen for anybody to spend eternity in heaven. Three things have to happen. Number one, your sins have to be paid for. Number two. You have to have the same righteousness as God, justification. And number three, that problem of being born spiritually dead has to be resolved and you have to become spiritually alive. But see, number two and number three that I just mentioned, justification and regeneration, take place when you express your faith alone in Christ alone. But redemption has to do with the objective work of Jesus Christ on the cross when he pays for all of our sins. 
And because he paid the sin penalty for everyone, nobody that's in the lake of fire is going to say, well, he didn't pay for my sins. The scripture says he did. He paid for the sins of the whole world. But the problem is there are people who are still spiritually dead and they still lack perfect righteousness. That's why in John 3.18, the issue is belief in Christ. Why are they condemned? Because they did not believe in Jesus Christ. Because only through faith alone in Christ alone do you receive the imputation of perfect righteousness and are you regenerate, born again. If you don't believe in Christ, your sins are paid for, but you're spiritually dead, therefore you're still in your sins, and you are you lack perfect righteousness. When you come to the final judgment, the great white throne judgment, what God is going to want to know is, are your works good enough to get you into heaven? That focuses on that, that minus R, that lack of righteousness aspect. Because no unbeliever is going to have righteous works that come up to the standard of God's perfect righteousness. His sins were paid for, but he didn't accept that, and he's trying to do it on his own. So he's evaluated on the basis of whether his works were good enough. And his works aren't good enough. And so he is condemned for eternity to the lake of fire. Redemption, point number eight. Redemption views salvation from the standpoint of the complete payment of our sins. And so people have to believe. They have that option of trusting in Christ for eternal life. And the ninth, since the believer has been bought by Christ... We now belong to Christ. He is our master. This is, as it were, the application. The rest of it's all application, but this drives it home to the believer after salvation. Because Paul says, you have been bought with a price. It's the imagery of slavery. You were in, on the slave market of sin, and Jesus Christ came and purchased you. So that you did not become a free agent. You just shifted masters. You went from being under the dominion of the sin nature and in the dominion of Satan to being in the kingdom of God's beloved Son so that you are now His. We belong to Christ. That's the application. That affects how we look at life. It affects our priorities. It affects our decisions. It affects everything. That's why Paul makes that conclusion. Therefore, you have been bought with a price... Therefore, glorify Him in everything. These are the results of salvation. Now, as we look at our passage in Revelation chapter 5, we see that there is another phrase that is frequently associated with redemption. The song that the 24 elders are singing says, You have redeemed us to God by your blood. That is the payment price that is given. Again and again in Scripture, we have been bought with His blood. It's emphasized again and again and again. So what what does this term mean, the blood of Christ? And you'll find that, and maybe you've been exposed to this teaching in different churches, you'll have some people that just so emphasize the blood that it it becomes almost a literal, tangible thing. You have hymns written that treat this as if it's a literal thing. 
there is a fountain filled with blood flowing from Emmanuel's veins. And you have a medieval Roman Catholic uh, heresy that the angels came down with a uh, golden bowl and uh, took the literal blood of Christ as it flowed from his body and then they took it to heaven and they put this upon the heavenly altar and it is that literal blood that that saves. Now, this is a misunderstanding and a distortion of Scripture, but it's one that, that we must come to understand so that we can appreciate its use. It's a legitimate figure of speech in the Scriptures, and it's a legitimate figure of speech to use in Him. Sometimes when people understand this, they think, ah, well, that, that hymn uses the phrase blood of Christ. Well, we can't use that. No, it's a legitimate image, but we have to understand how it functions. Uh, E.W. Bullinger, in his work, let me look, just look at it, in his work, Figures of Speech Used in the Bible, written in the early part of the 20th century, writes the following. In the New Testament, the expression, the blood of Christ, is the figure metalepsis. Because first the blood is put by synecdoche. I'll tell you what a synecdoche is, is in a minute. Is put by synecdoche for bloodshedding, i.e. the death of Christ as distinct from his life. And then his death, that is his physical death, is put for, the, we would say spiritual death, making it a metonymy, perfect satisfaction made by it for all the merits of the atonement affected by it, i.e. it means not merely the actual blood corpuscles, Neither does it mean his death as an act, but the merits of the atonement affected by it and associated with it. Now, he writes in a style that is much more convoluted and complicated than what, how people write today. But I just want to put this up here because every now and then when I teach on this, you have people who've never heard this before and say, boy, that just doesn't sound right. That sounds like heresy. And so I'm going to give you several quotations here from scholarly sources showing that scholars who are students of language and how language works clearly understand that this phrase, blood of Christ, is nothing more than a figure of speech that stands for what took place on the cross between 12 noon and 3 p.m. when darkness covered the face of the earth and God the Father imputed to the Son the sins of humanity. And it was only after that was done, when he is separated from the Father and cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's only at the conclusion of that when it is finished. And twice the uh, Apostle John tells us that it was finished. He says, And when it was finished, to die, Jesus says, It is finished, to die." The double use of that word there in two verses emphasizes the fact that before Jesus died physically, before the Roman soldier put the uh, spear into his side and the uh, blood and the water flowed out, before any of that took place, sins were paid for on the cross and the work of redemption was over. Crucifixion is not a bloody death. It is a death by, by asphyxiation. It's a death when you're hanging there and the force of the, uh, of the internal organs are pressed finally up against the diaphragm and the person is so exhausted he can't breathe anymore and he finally dies. And it was designed in many cases to last for two or three days. But in the case of Christ, it only lasted a few hours. 
because once his work was accomplished, he willingly, voluntarily gave up his spirit and died physically. But the physical death was not what was related to the atoning work on the cross. It was important. It was significant. It's not irrelevant. It is very much a part of all that's going on on the cross. But that which paid the penalty for your sins and mine was what took place spiritually, a spiritual atonement. So Christ does die twice. We'll sing a hymn when we close today that talks about Christ's two deaths, his spiritual death, which is the one that's redemptive, and his his physical death. Now, the this quote I just gave you from Bollinger, and you don't need to try to wrap all your thinking around those terms that you never heard of before and you'll probably never hear again. Uh, metalepsis and synecdoche, these are just different uh, technical terms for figures of speech. Bullinger's book is about three inches thick. I wore it out when I was going through the Psalms in, in my second year Hebrew class in seminary because poetic literature uses all manner of different kinds of, of figures of speech and idioms. And you would not imagine, you could not imagine how many there are. There are literally hundreds and hundreds of different kinds of figures of speech. If You, you, you learned about uh, similes and metaphors, and that was about it when we went through uh, English classes and literature classes uh, in our education system. But there's hundreds of them. A metalepsis is one that involves two figures of speech called a metonymy. A metonymy is very close to a synecdoche. Synecdoche is another word that's used. The difference is that a synecdoche involves the exchange of one idea for an associated idea, like the idea of physical death is substituted for the idea of spiritual death, whereas a metonymy substitutes one noun for another. Blood is one noun put in place of death. That's another noun. So these are the technical terms uh, that are used for uh, to describe this kind of figure of speech. But the term blood of Christ is used again and again in Scripture. It's a legit, legitimate uh, way to talk about what Christ did on the cross. And I just have a few of these references up here. Acts 20:28. 20, he purchased with his blood to make secure for himself. He is an appreci- uh, a propitiation by means of his blood. Romans 3:25. Romans 5:9 justified by means of his blood. Ephesians 1.7, we have redemption through his blood. Ephesians 2.13, we are brought near by means of the blood. Colossians 1.20, he made peace through the blood of his cross. Hebrews 9.14, the blood of Christ cleanses our conscience. Hebrews 9.22, we are purified by his blood. Katharizo, Hebrews 10. Four, he takes away our sins. Afireo, Hebrews, uh, excuse me, Hebrews thirteen twelve. We're sanctified by his blood. Hagiazo, First Peter one eighteen. We are redeemed, purchased, lutrao, with his precious blood. Um, but this imagery goes back to the Old Testament. It takes us all the way back into the Old Testament. So let's break this down just a little bit before we go forward. First of all. Point number one, the phrase blood of Christ or his blood or the blood of the lamb is a common biblical phrase describing the death of Christ. Five times it's used in the book of Revelation. Ten times in the book of Hebrews. 
there's a mention of the blood of Christ along with numerous other places in Scripture. Second point, unfortunately, this is often a misunderstood phrase, and people who ought to know better take it as a literal description. We must understand that under the principles of literal interpretation, which means that we understand the Bible in terms of the plain, normal use of language, we clearly recognize the use of figures of speech. This includes metaphors and similes, personification, hyperbole, synecdoche, merism, metonymy. These are just a few of numerous figures of speech used in the Bible. They're clearly understood idioms in the Bible, and that's why we have to interpret the Bible in light of the time in which it was written. So we look at these things, and I'll give you the third and fourth point before we wrap up this morning. Third point, we, following the basic rules of word study, we see that throughout the Old Testament, the phrase shedding of blood takes its meaning from the original murder of Abel by Cain. He sheds his blood. Now, in that case, there's a literal shedding of blood because he used the sacrificial knife in order to kill his brother Abel. But there is an extension of this to all kinds of violent, wrongful death. Genesis 9-4 shows an extension of this where blood is related to life. There we read, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Blood, therefore, stands for life. The shedding of blood is a idiom then that becomes uh, that, that means the loss of life Genesis 9-6 states whoever sheds man's blood by man his blood shall be shed for in the image of God he made man this is the foundational verse for capital punishment it's never been rescinded as this part of the Noahic covenant the Noahic covenant not only promised that God would not destroy the earth by water now just a side note came out this last week that there's an environmentalist group that's building an ark on Mount Ararat. Did you all see that? See, they don't believe in God, that God could destroy the earth earth by water, but they think that we are because of global warming. Well, God said he would never allow the earth to be destroyed by water again. As a sign, he put his bow in the clouds, a rainbow. But that's not the only thing he said in that covenant. He also said... Verse 6, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall also be shed. Capital punishment. As long as you see that rainbow, you think that murderers ought to be killed. Don't just think about that. God's not going to destroy by water. You think about capital punishment. Every time you see that rainbow, it's still in effect. Okay? But notice how it's expressed. Shedding blood. Now, wait a minute. Does that, let's take that literally. Oops. If they kill by poison... Well, it doesn't apply. Let's take this shedding of blood literally. If, if they just strangled them, no capital punishment. See, we, we, know, we, we know just because we understand language that the shedding of blood is talking about violent murder. It's not talking about literally it, there has to be bloodshed. Okay, so Genesis 9-6 develops the foundation for this imagery, and we see this throughout the Bible. A fourth point. This is clearly recognized in the standard Greek scholarly lexicons. In fact, Spiros Zodiades, in his uh, dictionary on the New Testament, states it very clearly. He says, 
The same is true of the blood of Christ, the blood of the Testament, the New Testament of my blood, which designates the life of Christ offered for an atonement contrasted with the blood of beasts slain in sacrifice. The blood of Christ, therefore, represents the life that he gave for our atonement. That's, that's what I'm saying. It is not a literal blood. It is that this is a term picturing the violent loss of life. But it's the physical life stands for, I mean, the spirit, loss of physical life stands for his spiritual substitutionary death. So that is, goes on to say, the shedding of Christ's blood was necessary for the satisfaction of God's justice. Man's sin could not go without expiation, the act of propitiation. Okay, so he recognizes that it's a figure of speech. D.A. Carson, very well-known theologian, theology professor at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, states in his book, Exegetical Fallacies, he writes, a third level of the same problem was painfully exemplified in three recent articles about the blood of Christ and Christianity today. The author did an admirable job of explaining the wonderful things that science has discovered that blood can do. See, this was somebody who was just going on and on about the value of the literal blood of Christ. What a wonderful picture, we are told, of how the blood of Jesus purifies every sin. But Carson then says, in fact, there's nothing of the kind. Worse, it's irresponsible, mystical, and theologically misleading. The phrase, the blood of Christ, refers to our Lord's violent sacrificial death. In general, the blessings that the Scripture show shows to be accomplished or achieved by the blood of Jesus are equally said to be accomplished or achieved by the death on the cross. It is that spiritual substitutionary death that paid for our sins. And so when we read a phrase that, he, uh, that the Lamb was slain and that we were redeemed to God by His blood, it is that spiritual atonement that takes place when His the blood is put for his physical death, but that's why it's called a double figure of speech. The physical death is put for his spiritual death. It is that time when Jesus Christ pays for our sins. Every sin is truly, actually poured out upon him on the cross, and he pays for it. Not hypothetically, not provisionally. That kind of terminology is not used. He died, who pair plus a genitive, as a substitute for you. And if you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have eternal life, but there is an ongoing responsibility because you have been bought with, your, with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to come uh, to a greater understanding of what was provided for us, what Christ paid for on the cross, of his substitutionary redemptive work that he paid for our sins. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their eternal life or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. All that is required is that you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins because he paid the penalty. All you have to do is accept it. This is your opportunity to do so. The instant that you put your faith in Christ... He know God the Father knows what you've trusted in, and you receive the imputation of Christ's righteousness. You're declared justified, and you're regenerate, and you can never lose that salvation. 
Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with what we've studied today, that we have been bought with a price. Therefore, we are to glorify God in everything we think, say, and do. We pray this in his precious name. Amen.